there is literally nothing an audience does now that surprised me because I've done two shows now that feature heavily involvement from the audience and opinions and chatting to them and getting them to shout out and date live on stage and take a gun and shoot me in the head. In that in that theatre, you're creating an atmosphere whereby it's safe danger. So they know that you're in control of the show, so they're not going to seriously get hurt, so it allows them to do things they wouldn't do in normal life. So there's a kind of weird anarchic energy in there that just allows anything to happen. Hello, you're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman, and today we're asking what happens when the power is in an audience's hands. That voice you just heard was Rob Drummond. He's a playwright and a performer about to take to the stage at the National with his one-man show, The Majority. A quick heads up for you, we're going to be talking about some elements of this show in detail that may affect your experience of it if you come to see it. We won't be spoiling any of the plot of the show, but we will be revealing one of the central votes which is put to the audience during it. If you're going to come and see the show and would rather go in cold, you might want to save this episode until afterwards. In the show, the audience have the power literally in the palm of their hands. Everyone's given a keypad when they come in, which they can use to vote on a series of yes or no propositions that Rob puts to them. Each audience member has a vote, and the majority decides the outcome. Now these votes aren't gimmicks, they're decisions that affect the outcome of the story, as well as having palpable real-world consequences. Today we're investigating this show, and all the questions it flags up about democracy, participation and power. We've been following Rob and the show's director, David Overend, since the very start of the rehearsal process when we went to Loughborough, into their rehearsal room, to meet them. How long have you been rehearsing in this room for? Where are you at? Like, what stage are you at? Well, this is just day two of, I think it's only a three-day process where we just take stock of where we're at with the show um, and try and advance it to the scripting stage. So you're not even scripting it yet? No, I've tried to write this show for the last three years and every time I would write a version of it, the world would change in some way, like, like Brexit or Trump, in some major way that affected what the show was saying. For example, I wrote a version of the show which was a warning against referendums and then Brexit happened. So David Cameron did my show in real life. So I had to go, well, this is not the show anymore and we'll try and find it. So we made a decision. We're not writing any more bloody drafts. We're just going to go into the room and work out the show in the world as it appears close to the time we're putting it on. Okay, and then a general election was announced. Yeah, exactly. A general election was announced as we were starting to think about that process. Um, so it validated what we were doing, which is not um, making a show that will be out of date very quickly. Um, and, and, and we're just going to see what the world's like and adapt the show accordingly. And tell me a little bit more about how you kind of approach shows in general. Like, are they always biographical? The ones I'm in are usually biographical, um, and I take an aspect of me and I turn the dial up to 10. So if I'm a little bit neurotic about something, I become the most neurotic person about that in the world. Or if I'm a little bit depressed, I become manic depressive. And, and I examine the facets of my personality through some other form, like a magic show or uh, the other one was a dating show I just recently did. And this is a voting show where the audience get voting pads and they, they, they help me to decide things um, by voting. What we're doing is taking the method that we use in this country, which is referendums, you know, majority, majority rule, 
and we're applying that to a different set of questions, and we're, we're letting the audience um, answer moral, ethical questions and things that they they care about in their own lives. And, and so, so we're not actually, it's a political show, but we're not talking in great detail about boring politics stuff. We're talking more about theories and um, how we live our lives better. It wasn't long into our conversation with Rob before he introduced us to one of the questions he'd be putting to the audience during the show. Um, and the other side of it, I think we can talk about the trolley problem now which is more of a moral dilemma question we're, we're going to ask the audience. And the trolley problem is quite a famous philosophical um, thought experiment in which a trolley or a train car, let's just say, um, is heading down the tracks. And up ahead, you've got five workmen who are working on the tracks that haven't, uh, that haven't seen it. It's a runaway trolley. They will be killed if it hits them. But you have the chance to pull a lever and send the train onto a siding where only one workman is working. So do you pull the lever? At this point, I did what any responsible podcast host would do. I ducked the question and asked what Emma, our producer, would do instead. So I'm going to ask producer Emma what she would do in this situation. I think pulling the lever makes you complicit in the act, makes you... Just yes or no, please, Emma. <laughs> just, just yes or no. But I want to justify it though, it's really, it's no, really hard. I, I love the conversation in which you justify it, but that's the interesting thing about this show is we don't have yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, that we is interesting. Force you to say yes or no, yeah. so I'm going to have to force you to say yes or no now. I would say no. You see, I'm thinking about what I would do in that situation, because you're talking about a split second decision and you can only pull it or not pull it, right? And you can't... Let's say it's not a split second. Let's say you've got a week, okay. a week to decide. This well, is hypothetical. So oh, sure, well, fine. So, well, if I had a week to think about it, I probably wouldn't do it. Because of just the reasons yes, that just Emma. A yes or no, then, please. Just no, I'm not going to pull it if you give me a week. I'm going to be held to account for this. That's interesting because in the show, the question would not. If 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 someone from the audience went, how long have I got to decide? Referendums don't work like that. The nuance is dead. I would I, I would just have to say answer the question as it's worded. Now, I don't want you to think that this is only a game show, just full of problems. It has a story and a structure, characters. And in rehearsals, it needed to be pulled into shape, just like any other play. Right now, we're just trying to get the story together, and then we're, we're looking at it, and there's three characters in this play. One is me, one is the man I meet during my research journey, um, and the other is the audience. We're going to cast them as a character in the play. And each of those characters, what we're doing this week, is working out the journey of each of those characters. Um, two of them are quite simple because it's a real story that happened to me with some false elements to be dramatically interesting. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's in, a, in essence, it's a real story that happened to me. Um, so that takes care of itself. We just need to mould that into a, into a shape. But the audience's journey is much more difficult. We need to work out how they relate to that story and how, through the referendums, they can have their own journey of discovery. David, I want to ask you a bit more about your role as a director in this show and how it kind of differs to the conventional understanding of what a director is. It's early in the process, so I don't know yet. <laughs> but I've worked with Rob on something like 20 shows, and they've all been very... Sorry. No. From our early student days... You're probably, you're probably right, that's horrifying. <laughs> we've, we've done Straight Plays, where Rob's written a script, and then I've cast it with actors and rehearsed it, and he's come in for the opening. Um, we've done it when I've um, performed in it as well and, and improvised. We've created shows by improvising with a group of performers and then Rob's written down the script after that. Um, but in this show, some, 
it's, it's something more about a kind of collaboration as the story and the structure emerge. And then Rob will have a period of going away and writing it and will continue to shape that material. But when we go into rehearsals, um, my role changes a bit and becomes something like an audience representative in the room. So I'm often in dialogues with, with, with Rob um, using the script as a, as a starting point and we're trying to create that relationship which we then transpose into a much bigger audience in the theatre. Emma, do you have any questions you want to throw in? Kind of in the planning stages of this, are you making some assumptions about the demographic of a national theatre audience? Is that kind of factored in? I'm trying not to make assumptions. At the back of my mind, I do think they're probably more going to be more left-wing than right-wing. I'd love to be wrong about that. I'd love to be surprised. Um, so at the beginning of each show, we'll just we'll find out who they are and we'll get a picture of that community. They might be mainly left-wing in that night and mainly right-wing in that night. They might be um, mainly male and mainly female. Or they might be older or younger. So each night, the character of the audience is different. So, let me get this right. This community is a liberal, white, pro-choice, anti-death penalty atheist. This community is female and does not believe in freedom of speech, absolutely. But this community believes it can make a difference. Was that right? Yeah, that was right. This is who you are. The majority has spoken. One of the really important things that we always need to do is rehearse an audience. Um, normally you don't really need the audience to be in the rehearsal room, but because we have to test out these open improvisational sections, we need to get different audiences in all the time. So we're going to be inviting audiences um, two or three times a week throughout rehearsal to come and go through this experience and cast their votes and get a sense of where they're going to take the show and how we can respond to that in the moment. And that's always really exciting because you learn things from new people coming into the rehearsal room that you would never have an insight into if you were just working in that closed way. There's a trolley or a train car headed a along a train track and it's going too fast. There's five workers on the line up ahead. It's going to kill them. But there's a lever or a lever. Who says lever? Who says lever? Let's not vote on that. Put your hand up for lever. Yeah, Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck. Um, there's a, a lever. Um, Alright, so the results of this one, pushing the lever. Oh right, so we're quite a utilitarian audience. We value the five lives ahead of the one, so we would push the lever and kill the one guy. The train is hurtling down the track towards five workers. On the siding is your child. So what's the moral thing to do? What's the correct thing to do? If you push the lever, you'll save five very good people. But you'll sacrifice your child. This community would push the lever. How are we going to let them do this one? Talk. Quick decision. quick decision. Ten seconds. This community would push the lever and save the five lives. Mm. Very honest.
As you can imagine, the show throws up a lot of questions about how we choose to vote. So we wanted to speak to an expert on voting. Oliver Heath is a professor of politics and co-director of the Democracy and Election Centre at Royal Holloway University. Among other things, he's interested in how we design and carry out surveys on voters. So I had to ask him, why have all the recent polls we've done to predict the outcomes of referendums and elections been so wide of the mark? Yeah, there, I mean, there, there's so many things that can affect the accuracy of the polls. And, and that is, is one of them, whether people do actually end up doing what they, what they say they will do. And one of the things that the polls really struggled with this time was trying to sort of predict whether people were going to vote at all in the first place. So you had lots of young people saying they were going to vote and they were going to vote Labour. And the polling companies had to make a decision and think, well, are these young people really going to vote? Because in the past... They haven't done. Um, and so if they sort of weight down um, the likelihood of them voting, then it makes the Conservatives look better. Mm. Um, and so that, that's difficult to predict. And you're, you're basing, you're making an educated guess, but you're making an educated guess based on historical information, right? And historical information isn't still true all of the time because these young people are different to young people from 10 years ago. Yeah, and for sure, in times of sort of volatility, it makes it much more difficult. So you can use sort of past voting behaviour, past political participation as an indication of what people are going to do. But if everybody's changing their mind, if people who didn't used to vote are suddenly voting, if people who voted for one party are voting for a different party, then that historical information becomes less useful. And so then, once again, you're more likely to make errors. But I think it is worth sort of separating out these opinion polls, which are much more based on educated guesswork than the sort of gold standard academic sort of face-to-face probability samples that will be done um, in the sort of aftermath of the election, which have got a much better track record and generally produced better quality data. theatre auditorium you're aware that there's this level of artifice and you know I'm not sure I'm sure some of the things you're going to set up are going to play out in very real ways but I guess for a lot of people when they go to that ballot box it doesn't feel real because it can feel you know you're one of several million do you you know you have a vote but do you really feel that your vote counts? It's like that isn't it because when I go and vote I think this act if I didn't vote today it would not change the result of this election no one's going to win by one vote but it's quite trite to say this because it's quite cliche, but if everyone thought that, then it would change. So it, you're, you're, kind of, you're almost making a commitment, by voting you're making a commitment to believing in the group and to believing that what we're doing together is worthwhile. For people living in very sort of safe seats where it's obvious which party is going to win, they, they can feel like their vote, vote doesn't, doesn't make a difference. Our electoral system in that sense doesn't weigh all votes equally. Um, but in the referendum, you know, every vote counted equally, wherever you are. Um, and perhaps that was one reason why, you know, we saw such high turnout and why why so many people did go to the polls and, and vote, because, you know, they felt it, it really would make a difference. Voting puts power in the hands of an electorate. 
And what seems to define recent votes is the result taking the leading parties by surprise. So I had to ask Rob, as the leading party in the theatre auditorium, how open was he to that possibility? Are you concerned about the audience taking you by surprise? Definitely. Um, and, and if they do the wrong thing, that makes the show better. If they do the thing I didn't want, that, that is inherently dramatic. That's why a lot of people voted for Trump and voted for Brexit, because the drama of it was so exciting. Like my mum even mentioned to me, I think I might vote for, if, if I was American, I think I might vote for Trump because I really want to see the end of that story. You know, I really want to see him as president because I'm watching this. Mum, it's real. It's not, it's not. Of course she couldn't do any damage because she didn't have a vote, but there must be Americans who thought that way. If my mum thought it, then there's got to be thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans that also had that inclination to, that's the guy off The Apprentice and he's going to be president. That I've, that I've got to see. It'll be great telly. Great telly. And actually it, it is. That's the, the perverse thing. The world's more interesting for having him as, as president, as an artist. It's, it's better. As a comedian, if I was a comedian, I would think the same thing. There's more comedy from him being there than from some safe, steady pair of hands. But it's real, so <laughs> we can't fuck about with it. Um, let's go to uh, Donald Trump. Okay, Donald Trump has some redeeming qualities. <laughs> has some redeeming qualities. Vote one for yes and two for no. Three seconds left. Okay, so Donald Trump has got some redeeming qualities. Of course he does, doesn't he? <laughs> so 90% of you don't think he has one single redeeming quality. Do you just hate him that much that you can't even allow your finger to press yes on that one? 10% of people, I would say... One thing that came up in the rehearsal for the majority was uh, a question about the, the power of how a question is phrased. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a lot of work has been done about how the different ways questions in elections are phrased, or referendums, I guess. How those questions are phrased has an impact on how people choose to vote. What, how powerful is it if you change a referendum from yes or no to leave or remain? Like, What kind of impact can that have? Yeah, no, I mean, there are all sorts of examples which really sort of show how, how much difference this can make. So there's some elections in America where um, they, they randomise the order in which candidates appear on the ballot mm. because they think there's a tendency for people just to vote for the person who's at the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, And it, it makes a big difference. It can, it can add one or two percentage points to your share of the vote if you're at the top of, top of the list. So people who've got surnames beginning with A are generally <laughs> going to do better than people with surnames beginning with Z if the ballot's ordered alphabetically. I would read the rest of the candidates, but I've got to get to work, so I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. take the first one that I see. Yeah. Aren't you ultimately in control of the audience in this show? Surely the way you present the options the choices they're going to have to vote on, doesn't that afford you a level of control that will allow you to influence the outcome? Ask David Cameron. Great answer. Um, there is something about the power dynamic between Rob on stage, knowing what he's doing, and the audience 
experiencing this for the first time. But conversely, there are 400 of them in relative safety of the anonymity of the collective and Rob on his own in a very vulnerable position on the stage. So a democracy works. You've got to at some point agree to give up certain powers. You've got to say someone's got to lead us. So they need to make decisions. We seem to, as a human species, need someone at the top or a group of people at the top running things and making decisions. And we get limited amounts of, we can vote them in, but we can't, once they're in, control everything they do. So it's an interesting, that's what essentially this show is. It's I'm in power. <laughs> Who elected you? The audience did by buying the ticket. You've got to give up some of your power because you can't get up on the stage and say, I can do better because you've elected me as the one to do the, the running of the show. So it's, it's similar to democracy. We're trying to, we're trying to explore these things in a fun way. Yeah. Taking part in the rehearsals for this show made us think a lot about the power dynamics at play between Rob and his audience. So we wanted to talk to an expert in audiences and their behaviour to help us analyse what was going on in this show. Kirsty Sedgman is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Bristol who studies theatre audiences and participation. She is also, full disclosure, my sister-in-law. So prepare for a little insight into the kind of light-hearted chat you get around the Sedgman family dinner table. At the beginning, Rob is taking pains to very explicitly outline the rules of how the voting interaction works right the first vote that he asks us to do is do you understand what's expected of you yes or no um what did you make of that element i loved that moment possibly because of the way that question was phrased do you understand what is expected of you here do you understand what the rules are here yes or no and when we voted yes unanimously we were then told that we understood and accepted the rules and what was going to happen as a result. What's really interesting about that, I think, is that understanding doesn't equate to acceptance. So later on in the show, when somebody questioned him about one of Rob's decisions and was told, but you agreed that I would be setting these rules, I was remembering that moment and thinking, I didn't necessarily agree, but time has passed We've moved too far past that moment now for me to suddenly raise an issue. One of the things that I'm really interested in is ideas of audience complicity, which is one of the things that I think the majority dealt with beautifully. The question of how can we lead audiences along a path, encourage them to make often uh, more extreme decisions, and then find a moment in the performance where we encourage them to question where they've come to as a result of those choices. To suddenly look back and think, actually, maybe I'm not ethically comfortable with the decisions that I've made up to this point. We caught up again with Rob and David after they'd begun rehearsing with audiences here at The National to talk about how the show had developed. One thing I was really interested to ask them was how the process of voting itself, asking the audience to use those little keypads, was working out for them. It was really interesting to go into that room and have the abstract idea of being able to vote yes or no and various questions be put in my hand in the form of this little keypad. What kind of practical things have come out of the way the mechanics of voting technology works in the room? We've learnt that it makes a huge difference how much time you give people to vote because if it's a six second vote then they have to just make a decision and go on instinct if you give them 30 seconds then they can talk about it with whoever they're sitting next to and reflect on what the right answer should be before they press that button and so we've been varying time to great effect Mm. 
Do you think people's decisions change if you give them more time, as well as just changing the nature of how they feel about it? Yes, because there's a big difference between your instinctive reaction, should I push this guy off the bridge to save these people, or the time taken to think about whether that's the right thing to do or whether it's something that you could live with and by the time you've started asking those questions of yourself you're much more likely to change your response so it's convenient sometimes to give the audience a bit more time to think more deeply about the questions that we're asking and on other occasions it's more useful to say make a decision now we want to know what you would do what kind of choices are they less willing to vote on if it gets more complex then there's more abstentions so if you've got more moral cloudiness in your brain you're less you're more likely to just go i can't decide in 10 seconds and so i'm not going to try is not voting a valid choice but if you abstained on brexit for example and in hindsight you now think as a lot of people do that it's a disaster what's happened then you've been part of that disaster by not using your democratic right to vote. so it's, But at the time, if you genuinely didn't know the answer, then I can't criticise someone for genuinely not knowing what to vote and not voting. Because they could have got it wrong, they could have got it... They could have been worse, mm. you know? What we're trying to avoid doing in this show is saying that the audience should do one thing or another. We're merely asking questions about the decisions that they make and exploring the implications of those decisions. It's not for us to say whether abstaining on a particular vote is right or wrong. It's for us to reflect on what that means and to open up a space to question what abstention is and how it functions Mm. and what agency that leaves you with. So the majority is all about giving audiences the power to vote, which is a, a kind of limited level of control that the audience is given. I wanted to ask you about some of the different ways that audience can be given power or control in a show. And in your in your experience, how do they react when they get it? There's very often a sense that audiences are inherently passive and they need to be made active and that it's the job of practitioners to do so. Now, as an audience researcher, I believe that audiences are already active. I believe that audiences always have some power, some agency over their experience, even if it's to the extent of being able to get up and leave or to fall asleep. So often when we, we ask students, for example, what audiences or what circumstances do you think might make an audience passive? They'll say, well, perhaps falling asleep. Well, that's an active choice to disengage from the action to not let it impact you in the way that you think you're being invited to feel. In a show like this, it's easy to go, oh my God, we're giving the audience power by giving them these handsets. But really you're saying that audiences always have power. We just tend not to think about it as as, as power or an action um, because they are free to, I guess they're free to disrupt the show by standing up and heckling and, and, and walking out or even just completely disengaging, as you say. There's the temptation to praise a show like Majority for giving audiences the ability to be active. But the really interesting thing about the format that's been devised by the team is that it both extends possibilities for action and also denies them. We're aware that we're making a choice, but then as the choice is presented back to us, we're realising how it's actually a very limiting choice. Yes, and the really interesting thing that Majority is doing is it's, I think, 
asking us to consciously think about the ways in which, within the constraints of that theatrical event, we both do and do not have agency. We both do and don't have power to shape outcomes, to make decisions, what the limitations of those are, and then to transfer that out of the theatre. So to think about how those things, those same points are true in the social sphere. Definitely when I walked into the rehearsal, having not experienced the show until that point, I was imagining that having the ability to vote would give me a sense of control, but really underlined a lack of control. Yeah. In the sense that when you're an audience member and you're just sitting there in the dark watching something, you're free to react to it however you want. How do you imagine that room of 300, 400 people is going to feel when you get a 50-50 vote? But no one knows who, how anyone voted. Well, I think we've experienced this in the room. When the vote's close, you do start to get people's eyes darting around, wondering who has voted in that unconscionable way that I disagree with. Um, and you can see people covering up their voting pads and kind of pressing them in secret. Um, and that says something about the atmosphere we've created in this country, about being ashamed of having an opinion what these votes and revealing the percentages on these votes does is it immediately makes you think, oh, hang on a minute, I'm in the midst of people who think differently to me. And it offers a, it creates an imperative to know how to speak to those people and how to address those differences. What strikes me as unusual about this show is that Rob and David are having to do an awful lot of work anticipating how an audience might behave and the different options there, right? And I imagine that you're quite unique in that what you do is you go and ask audiences what they think (laughs) about stuff. Is it quite rare for a theatre company to do that kind of work and think that carefully and that closely about how an audience is actually going to take the stuff that's thrown at them? What separates for me this kind of theatre, this kind of theatre making from from more traditional forms is the fact that it invites audiences to engage in different ways, to participate, potentially to shout back, to alter the course of the action. But in doing so, crucially, it invites them to think about and reflect constantly on the place of themselves as an audience member, as a participant in the theatrical event. It invites them to participate, but also to think about the ramifications and implications of their participation. I want to know how much self-reflection you've done in a show that is essentially telling the story of your own engagement with politics. We talked about this a bit today because um, Roxy, who's been assisting us in the rehearsal room, and myself realised that we've never actually used the voting pads ourselves the whole time that we've been rehearsing and that's something that feels quite urgent that we that we address that now i think now the time has come to ask those questions of ourselves so that we have a real sense of what the audience experience is so would you push the big fat man off the bridge david i should explain there are other iterations to the trolley problem one of which is instead of pulling a lever you're given the option to push a man off a bridge into the path of the oncoming train to stop it hitting the other five people You kill that man by pushing him instead of pulling the lever. 
I don't know that I could bring myself to push an actual human being off a bridge. But so would the, you pull a lever? Yeah, I'd pull the lever. So you'd pull the lever to kill one person instead of letting five die, but you wouldn't push that man off a bridge? I think in the moment, I would find it hard to push a human so being that's, off a bridge. So that's a difference between what you would do and what you think you should do. Do you think morally you should push him off the bridge to save five lives? I think morally that you should, but I don't know that I would. Because a lot of people think morally you shouldn't, you absolutely should not ever push someone off a bridge despite the numbers game. Mm-hmm. Even if it was a hundred people down there, it doesn't justify killing someone. And where do you fall on that scale? I think that you, that it is a numbers game and we are kidding ourselves if we think it's not. Because the minute you say there's a million down there, then you start to get closer to pushing them. So even if you wouldn't push him, getting closer to doing it indicates it is a numbers game. And what's your number? How many people would you have to save to push a fat man off a bridge? Two. That's really interesting. Two's, big, uh, two's bigger than one, that's how I worked it out. I'm clever <laughs> like that. <laughs> More people live. I mean, that's how we how we conduct most decisions in foreign policy. It's, it's you know, Do we think this action is worth it in the long run because more people will live as a result of taking Saddam out of Iraq. In the end, we were wrong in that case, possibly. But it's still the reason we made the decision. That said, how much has the rehearsal process made you think about voting behaviours at large more generally? I'm wondering if it has given you maybe a little bit more empathy. I think, weirdly, the show is not actually... The question we're trying to answer is not to do with should you vote or should you not vote. It's more to do with how should you actually um, connect with fellow human beings that you disagree with. And the voting is a way of talking about that. So I think I went into this show feeling that the system we've got is problematic and not perfect, but I don't have a better solution other than talking to people a bit more. Or, or, or you know. So it, actually, it's a weird thing that the show hasn't made me think more about voting, but much more about how I talk to people when voting isn't an option. I think what the voting does is it brings a sense of frustration and limitation into the space that we then explore and address and provide a possible set of solutions to. Mm. Um, There are problems with the democratic system that we operate within, um, but it's the one that we use at the moment, and given that... How can we make it work better for ourselves? Yeah, well said. When we're done recording this, Emma and I are about to see the first preview of The Majority. It runs here at The National until the 28th of August. You can still get tickets for the show on the day, and a new batch of tickets for the following week's performances are released every Friday at 1pm. Just search Friday Rush on our website for more details. This episode was produced and edited by Emma Reedy, and it was presented and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman, with additional help from our social content editor, Nick Mulligan. Our executive producer was Kate Moore, and our music was by Alex Painter. A very big thank you to our guests this week, Rob Drummond, David Overend, Professor Oliver Heath, and Dr. Kirsty Sedgman. Rob and David aren't on Twitter, but you can follow Ollie at O-L-H-E, Kirsty at Kirsty Sedgman, me at Samuel Sedgman, and the NT at National Theatre. As audience part participation is all the rage we'd love you to let us know what you made of this episode tweet us with the hashtag ntpodcast to let us know what you thought of the show and whether or not you
you'd pull that lever to save those five workmen. You can also find us on Facebook, on Tumblr and Instagram. Just search for us at National Theatre. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next show. Until then, goodbye.